Hello, I'm Will Murphy. Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is David Ignatius. He's an author and a journalist. He's been with the Washington Post since 1986. He serves as associate editor and writes a syndicated column twice a week. In 2000, Ignatius worked as the executive editor of the International Herald Tribune and was the Washington Post's foreign affairs editor from 1990 to 1992. During those years, the paper won a Pulitzer Prize for its coverage of Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. Before his time with the Washington Post, Ignatius spent 10 years with the Wall Street Journal covering the steel industry in Pennsylvania. His expertise also extends to the Senate, the CIA, the Justice Department, and the Middle East. He's also a novelist of some renown, and his novels include The Sun King, Blood Money, and Body of Lies, which was turned into a movie by Ridley Scott. David Ignatius, thank you for joining us here today. Thank you, Will. And we should also point out that uh, Mr. Ignatius is here in part because he's the recipient of the Lee H. Hamilton Public Service Fellowship. So thank you for coming to our community and congratulations. You also spoke before uh, a largely student crowd and also members of the community uh, on the topic of uh, imagining Lee Hamilton's foreign policy for 2013. Let's start there. What do you mean by that title? What did you tell the folks? Well, the reason that that I'm here is that I was uh, given an opportunity to speak in honor of and celebration of Lee Hamilton, who I think is one of the most important politicians that I've covered uh, in my time as a journalist in Washington. Uh, And to me, Lee Hamilton stands for the uh, values and way of looking at the world that made American foreign policy strong in the years that it it was strong. And in my uh, remarks last night, I said that Lee Hamilton represented an internationalism of the heartland that came out of the center of America and came out of the center of American experience. Lee Hamilton, in the years after September 11, 2001, I think uh, was one of the two or three most important people in helping the country regain its sense of balance. First uh, with the 9-11 Commission, which he co-chaired, which told the country the truth about what had happened, explained how we had failed to connect the dots and see what was coming at us in the al-Qaeda attacks of of September 11, Uh, and then made recommendations that were fundamental. And I think that was a part of process of picking ourselves up and deciding how to move forward. President Bush, I think unwisely, uh, decided that as he moved forward in his presidency, uh, it it made sense for the country to invade Iraq. At the time, I I thought that perhaps that was a good idea, but Lee Hamilton's second great contribution was what, what was called the Iraq Study Group. Uh, the Iraq war, as we all know, began to turn terribly bad uh, and was costing a lot of American lives, also uh, increasingly thousands of Iraqi lives. And Lee Hamilton came in with his co-chair for that commission, James Baker, the former Secretary of State, and, and f- 
charted a path out of what was a failing war by presenting a series of alternative strategies. President Bush chose really the, the most hard-nosed one, which was included in the uh, Baker-Hamilton report, as it was called, which was to add additional troops in, in Iraq to try to stabilize the situation. As disastrous a mistake as I think Bush made in deciding to invade, I will always admire him for the decision to try to stabilize things through the surge. And I think that uh, that action led in, in Baghdad by General David Petraeus saved thousands, tens of thousands of Iraqi lives. It was a very courageous and correct application of policy that I also associate Lee Hamilton with. So because it, it solidifies and secures the situation somewhat? The country we, – we had, we had knocked the pegs out from under the structure of Iraq when we invaded. We didn't think about the vacuum of power that we were creating and we didn't have the ability to create a new power structure. So you had essentially anarchy in the country and people that we had imagined that we were going to create a modern democracy. In this power vacuum, people held on to their most basic allegiances, the allegiance of tribe, of sect, of region. Uh, so rather than moving the country forward, we, it had the perverse effect of throwing it back in time. And the, the violence, I was there often as a correspondent in that period, the violence was just a nightmare. You had uh, hundreds of bodies some days afloat uh, in the Tigris River, murdered in the most brutal way possible. And the question for America was whether we should just walk away from that mess that we had made or try to stabilize it. And I, I thought then, I, I think now, that it was right to, to try to stabilize it. So um, again, my coming to Bloomington was uh, an opportunity to say to Lee Hamilton face to face, what you did for the country is really important and I want to celebrate it. And then second, to look at the problems that we have today in, in 2013 and apply some of the same kinds of uh, analysis, same values that, that Lee Hamilton applied to these earlier crises I mentioned to what's going on now. So that's what I try to do in my, in my remarks. The best thing I can say about them is that at the end of the evening, uh, Lee Hamilton was smiling and nodding and asked, asked me for a copy. So we must have thought it was okay. Realistically, one wonders, is it possible in the current political environment in Washington to have a Lee Hamilton foreign policy in 2013? Well, that was one of my themes, uh, that, that if you had a, a not a Baker-Hamilton commission but a Hamilton-Hamilton commission – what would it recommend? And it would, it would probably start with the absolute requirement for bipartisan foreign policy for, for, as we used to say in America, putting politics aside at the water's edge. That, that's really broken down and it's one of the problems that President Obama is encountering. Um, uh, I just have gotten back from a trip overseas and I, uh, I, I see a world that's looking at our sharp partisan divisions. And, uh, you know, America was always the country that worked. It was the country of miracles because it had this very dynamic political and economic system. And, and our, our political system, at least, uh, seems paralyzed. People overseas see that. The government shut down, which shut down every American embassy in addition to shutting down the institutions of, of government here at home, just astonished people. This is, you know, the, peop the world is accustomed to thinking of, of America as the country that 
that works, that's modern, that, that you know, their countries may be inefficient, bogged down by partisan this or that, ancient feuds, but not America. Well, uh, sadly, that's changed. So I talked last night about, about how in the spirit of Lee Hamilton, people would begin to say we have to put the country first and uh, make sure that whatever we do, it's enhancing the country's interests and ability to operate. One thinks of uh, Representative Hamilton, Senator Luger, uh, I think of Charles Percy back in the day, uh, folks who were centrist in their orientation. Are there leading political figures who can help guide that debate uh, who are still in office in Congress? If you look at the House, uh, the House has become uh, so extreme. The impact of a, a group, we, we usually identify them as the Tea Party Republicans, but it's a group that really uh, isn't interested in passing legislation. This is a group that, that thinks that Washington is the problem, so convinced that Washington is the problem that, that, they, that they will tell you their job is to obstruct. Uh, that they don't want to pass budgets. They don't want to approve legislation. They don't. They, don't, they want to. They want to stop this machinery, because they think government is the problem. And when you have a group of people who's, who see their role as as obstructing the institutions that they've been elected to, um, you've got a real problem. And and so we're living through that. The Senate is still much more oriented toward toward a, a compromise and consensus. Uh, even with its with its filibuster rules, it's still a place where it's easier to find a center. I, I uh, think a lot of Americans hoped that Barack Obama, who, who who governed in 2008 as the person who would create a politics that was beyond racial categories and beyond party labels, he said often in 2008 he, he didn't want to govern for blue states or red states, but but govern for the country as a whole. I think there's a lot of disappointment that for whatever combination of reasons, he has not been able to, to do that, that we're as obstructed, uh, afflicted with these divisions now as we were back then when, when Obama was elected. And I, you know, as, as much sympathy as I have for, for Obama's plight, in the end, it's on him. This is his job. It's his job to figure out some way to pull the country together and to govern over the all the forces of uh, immobilization, dysfunction. And so far, he hasn't been able to do it. Just to say one last thing, when I look forward to the 2016 presidential race, the two leading candidates at the, at the moment – uh, both are people who I think may have the political skills to to solve these problems. Uh, they're both very adept politicians. They both like politics, which is not something I'd say about Barack Obama. Barack Obama is a smart guy. He doesn't seem to like politics. You know, he, he, he just had the feeling he'd rather be, you know, in the library. Uh, <laughs> playing basketball. The, so that, yeah, playing basketball or with his wonderful daughters. But yeah. he just he doesn't. And sometimes when he's around members of Congress, you think he's what he's thinking is get me out of here. <laughs> uh, the, the two leading candidates at this point, at least in my mind, would be Chris Christie on the Republican side, the governor of, of New Jersey, just won re-election uh, overwhelmingly. I've gotten to know Chris Christie uh, over the last three years. I find him a really interesting person in part because he has that raw – political instinct and skill. You, you think of a Lyndon Johnson, somebody who just loves to 
get to out of the middle of the mess of a state legislature and, and craft uh, legislation that will get his state going. If the fact that he has strong approval from every part of the spectrum, African-American voters, uh, white ethnic voters, women, uh, you know, everybody in New, in New Jersey seems to, to generally have a positive view of him. On the on the Democratic side, you'd say at this point the leading candidate is is Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton um, was, a, was a good Secretary of State. Hillary Clinton uh, made a lot of mistakes in the 2008 campaign. It was hers to, hers to lose and she lost it to Barack Obama. She, she wasn't as strong a candidate as she needed to be. I think she's learned a lot. So when I look toward that race, I, t- I see two people who have uh, experience, who are good at politics, who like to get out in a crowd and, and mix it up. And so, um, you know, I'm hoping uh, we all have a big stake in this impasse getting fixed because if it doesn't get fixed, our country is really going down. And so, uh, you know, I just have to hope that our process will renew itself. It will put figures uh, to the fore who, who, who have the, the skills that are needed. When you talk about these folks, though, and when I think about folks who have occupied the, either the Oval Office or the Secretary of State's position, um, temperament is such an interesting thing to watch. And so when you watch uh, Secretary of State Kerry, for example, I often get the impression he's trying to put people to sleep, you know, to, to lull people into, <laughs> I don't know, agreeing to things by making them sleepy. I, he's a very cerebral, not a kind of glad-hander kind of guy. You think of someone like Chris Christie, who's somewhat, I'd say, in the model of George Bush in that He's, he decides very quickly. He's not deliberative. He, he, he moves. Can you speak a little bit to that aspect of foreign policy, having someone, again, pointing to President Obama, who seems to me somebody who thinks and thinks and thinks and has taken a lot of heat in Syria in particular for not acting? Uh, can you talk about that playoff in the Secretary of State's position and the President's position? Well, Obama is a cerebral, no question about it. He seems to make his best decisions uh, in secret. I, I've described him in my columns uh, as a, a very effective covert commander-in-chief. Not, not so good at the public commander-in-chief part. I rarely went to our, our battlefields in Afghanistan, uh, almost never to Iraq. Um, but in, in the secret councils with his uh, CIA advisors, uh, his uh, special forces advisors, he made some very bold decisions. The decision to go after Osama bin Laden at his hideout in Abbottabad, he made with some of his key advisors saying, Mr. President, don't do it. It's too risky. And he did it in secret. He, he was bold about it. He was right. Similarly, in his use of drones, uh, he has taken apart the core leadership of al-Qaeda. It has been a relentless campaign uh, led by the president. And so it's, it's a funny thing about, about this uh, very, uh, uh, you know, refined uh, Harvard Law School graduate, seemingly so reticent in public, uh, seemingly such an intellectual. Uh, in, in these secret councils, he has been a very uh, tough and effective uh, leader. John Kerry had the, the – t- I, I always like to say John Kerry had the – the, the, the blessing of having failed. He failed spectacularly when he ran for president in 2004. 
Uh, he ran against George W. Bush and was shellacked and was seen by the country to be a somewhat elite figure, um, uh, as you say, uh, tendency to intellectualize, to pontificate a little bit. And he went through the, it seems, looking at, at people, one of the toughest experiences in life, which is to run for the presidency and lose. And in the aftermath of that, I watched John Kerry pick himself off the floor and put the pieces back together. And when Barack Obama was elected president, Kerry said, Mr. President, let me be your confidential emissary. Things that you can't do, I'm prepared to do. And he did them. Uh, because I follow this stuff carefully, I, I saw him make trips that were not publicized to, to Afghanistan, to Pakistan, to Gaza, uh, where he was acting as the president's quiet emissary or eyes and ears, and he, he did a good job of it. Uh, as Secretary of State, John Kerry has the, the chance, really, that he's always dreamed of, of shaping the, the country's foreign policy. And I think most people in Washington would say he's doing a pretty good job. He, he still is, you know, a guy who can, can put people to sleep. But, but he is the energizer bunny in terms of his travel and focus on specific uh, negotiations where Secretary uh, Clinton was a great representational secretary of state. She traveled. She gave speeches. She, you know, she was at every appearance. Uh, uh, John Kerry is a is a transactional secretary of state. He wants to make the deal. He's a closer. So he's been in a negotiation. A lot of people think is a loser to try to resolve the Israeli Palestinian issue. You know, some of the most thankless diplomatic tasks there is. But it's worth doing. It's you know, this is this is an open wound. It's been there for. 50 years, it's, it's, it's worth the time of the Secretary of State to, to, to go after this, and John Kerry has. This week, John Kerry is leading the American effort to see if it's possible to negotiate a deal uh, to, to halt the Iranian nuclear program so that we can avoid another war in the Middle East, something that no American would like to see. Kerry's thrown himself into that. He is absolutely passionate about it. So uh, I give Kerry a lot of credit for that. I give President Obama credit for giving Kerry the running room to do it. Uh, he's had to, to, to really hand a lot of this stuff over to Kerry. And we'll see. This is, this is all in the balance now. But you know, we're a country that has um, been to war uh, twice in the last decade painfully. And every American wants to avoid uh, doing that again. We really have learned a lesson about, about the limits on our, our power and ability to compel the outcomes we want. And I, I hope that everybody is watching, reading the news, watching TV, and hoping that this negotiation with Iran will be effective in stopping the Iranian nuclear program through diplomacy. I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to Profiles on WFIU, and our guest is David Ignatius, a writer in multiple genres, most closely associated perhaps with The Washington Post and his columns there. And he's in Bloomington as a recipient of the Lee Hamilton Public Service Fellowship and as part of the uh, IU School of Journalism uh, speaker series. You referenced in conversation about uh, President Obama and his successes in the Middle East, uh, questions of drones, questions of operating in secret. And of course, that's a very topical issue right now, the question 
of operating in secret and of monitoring communications, of uh, monitoring people via drones. There's a whole First Amendment question that's come up during the Obama administration, uh, ironically perhaps in his pursuit of foreign policy. Can you speak to that and how you perceive that as someone who's followed foreign policy for some 30 years now? Well, I think the paradox is that as, as um, America's overt military force was seen um, to have limited uh, efficacy in, in dealing with adversaries in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, increasingly Presidents Bush and Obama turned to uh, secret uh, uh, tools, the, the tools of intelligence, um, both collection of information and also uh, action operations as, as with the drones. And um, I've written that what troubles me about, about drones is that they become addictive. They are such an easy way to project power. You can do it without putting troops on the ground. You can do it with a wink and a nod from the government that's allowing you to operate your drones over their territory compared even to precision-guided bombs that are dropped from airplanes. They're very precise. They can linger over the target. They can wait until Will has walked away from the house and then bomb David. Um, so uh, they're, very, they're very tempting to use. My own judgment is that in going after the core of al-Qaeda, a group that had sworn itself to the mission of killing Americans and sh showed on September 11, 2001 and thereafter that it meant it, that using that terrible weapon was justified. We had no other good way uh, of getting into the area where these uh, leaders were hiding. And so the campaign to go after that core group, um, uh, I think, was one that was, was morally uh, justified. The problem is that this weapon uh, began to be used in other situations where the, the need for it was less compelling. Again, because it was, it was addictive. It was such, such an easy way to solve hard problems. We had a battle space in Yemen where uh, the, our allies were getting overwhelmed and al-Qaeda was getting stronger and stronger. So inevitably, people said, let's use drones. We had a uh, there was a war in Somalia, which was in, in many ways just a, one of the endless series of clan and tribal wars in Somalia we've seen over the last uh, 30 years. And, and the demand was, let's, let's use drones. The, the pressure to use drones uh, is going to continue for as long as we live. And in my last novel called Blood Money, uh, the book opens uh, imagining what it's like to be under a drone attack and imagining all of the enemies that we make without even realizing it as we use this weapon. And so the book in that sense is a caution against overuse of the weapon. So I, I want to say something that may sound contradictory to your, to your listeners, which is that the use of drones in, in some of the ways that, they, that we've been use, using them against core al-Qaeda um, uh, I think is defensible. The overuse of them in other uh, conflict areas, I think, is something to, that we really need to to limit. And uh, I would love to see, in effect, a, a regime of deterrence where we say, 
if you cross the line, if you threaten Americans or American space, we will come after you. And we have the weapons to do that. So don't cross that line. You know, if, you're, if your battle is in Somalia to rule Somalia, we may oppose you. We may support the guy who's in power because we think he's better. But we're not going to use this extraordinary weapon. That, that weapon is reserved for the cases in which we are threatened ourselves. And, and I think over time that can establish the kind of deterrence where there's a reason for people not to attack Americans. And that's obviously what, what, what we want. You asked about, about the issue that we're worried about most these days, which is surveillance. And again, I think the tools of surveillance, the, the, the te- technological um, toolkit that Americans are so brilliant at developing, began to get out of control. Um, if, if you've ever – journalists uh, – sometimes are allowed to go to Fort Meade to do interviews, and I've, I've done that. And so I'll just tell you what you'd see if you walked in the gates of Fort Meade, which is where the National Security Agency is headquartered. It's in Maryland between Baltimore and Washington. If you walked in the door, you'd see a lot of people in uniform because it's, it's, a, it's Fort Meade. It's a military base. You'd see a lot of people with long hair wearing T-shirts and, and ear studs and uh, beards and tats. And, you know, they're basically hackers because the NSA realized that if you are going to, you know, crack all these networks around the world, you need people who have the hacker mentality. So if you can imagine taking the military – uh, mindset, which is, you know, do the job, execute the mission to the, you know, precise parameters specified by mission command. And then you take the hacker ethos, which is basically, you know, c- crack it if you can, man. You know, it's like, you know, just, <laughs> just uh, you know, it's, it's almost a challenge if there's something that's closed space that, you know, find a way to break it. If there's somebody's cell phone that's, that's protected, well, find a way to decrypt the, the – so if you combine those two, you get what we have seen with NSA, this merger of a military mentality plus a hacker mentality in secret where it couldn't be checked and ventilated. I mean, that, that, that when you combine this kind of big bureaucracy with secrecy, you, you get bad outcomes. And, and what, what happened was that uh, – two more things about the NSA. The programs that bother Americans – it's important to note were legal programs. They were enacted into law by both houses of our Congress with significant majorities. They have been subject to oversight by the relevant intelligence committees. The leaders of those committees, in fact, um, are very knowledgeable about the programs. Any member who wanted to know more in theory could. They've also been subject to oversight by a court called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. So, you know, these American protections were built in. The problem was that they didn't work very well and the, and the programs got bigger and bigger and collected more and more information without people really getting their minds around 
just how vast the surveillance apparatus was. So from the standpoint of Americans, it was really we, – we had the legal structure in place. It just wasn't working well enough. So that needs to be fixed. It needs to be more transparent. If we're going to – we have to need to look at this and decide what we're going to do. A lot of it probably you know, makes sense in terms of protecting the country. Some of it certainly doesn't make sense in, in terms of protecting the country. But when it's more transparent, when there's better political judgment applied, those decisions will be made. Then there's the question of the effect of these programs on foreigners. You ask people in the intelligence community and the first thing they usually say is, sorry, the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to foreigners, which basically says to everybody around the world, sorry, Charlie, you're fair game. And that offends people. And it offends people especially when their chancellor, Angela Merkel, the chancellor of a friendly country, Germany, finds out that her cell phone has been bugged. Every private message she was sending has been monitored. And um, On one level, that's what intelligence agencies do. They exist to break the laws of other countries and steal secrets. That's what they're there for. But what I think is going to happen, and I said this in my speech last night, is that some uh, rational cost-benefit analysis will be applied to the collection of intelligence. I mean, if anybody had asked uh, 10 years ago, is, it, is there any conceivable secret we could learn from listening in to Angela Merkel's cell phone conversations that would outweigh the damage that would be done if this program was ever exposed? The answer would have obviously been no. There's no way you could get enough that would make it worthwhile to take that risk. But nobody ever asked that question. Now. I know from talking to people in the White House, the question is going to be asked systematically, is this program worth it? And so we'll restrict collection down to the things that actually matter in terms of protecting the country and potentially saving people's lives. The second thing that will come out of this, I think, is an examination of whether there – are there some privacy rights that citizens of friendly countries – uh, deserve, that we can extend to them without compromising our own security. They're not American citizens, so they don't get the Fourth Amendment. Sorry. You've got you to you be a citizen here to get that. But, but there, there are ways we can treat people from other countries with more respect, with the respect that we would want to be treated uh, if it was them spying on us. And I, so I think that will, that will be coming. And hopefully, over time, we'll work our way out of this. But uh, that's what we've had with the NSA is, is, is something that initially was um, you know, enacted into the law that ended up in a place that uh, I, don't, I don't think anybody wants, anybody's comfortable with, and will change. All right. Thank you. Our guest today on Profiles is David Ignatius, a writer for The Washington Post, the author of several novels. Uh, and in Bloomington to, uh, among other things, uh, be recognized as a Lee Hamilton uh, Public Service Fellowship uh, and also to speak as part of the speaker series through the IU School of uh, Journalism. We talked earlier about foreign policy, about uh, um, privacy issues, but let's turn a little bit uh, to your second career or your hobby or whatever you want to call it. I'm not quite sure what what role it, it plays in your life here, but your role as a novelist, you've been writing, what, some eight? I just finished my ninth novel. Right. Um, and let's start, first of all, by how you came to that line of work. What prompted you to take up uh, fiction as a genre? It's a complicated story. I'll tell it as briefly as I can, but I hope your listeners will be interested. 
uh, in the early 1980s, I was a correspondent, Middle East correspondent for the Wall Street Journal and spending most of my time in Beirut. When I went to begin that assignment, I had a former uh, government official tell me that the is- Israelis had, had recently killed our men in the PLO, is what this person said. PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, at the time was the leading terrorist group in the world. So I went to Beirut with this idea that a person who was easy to identify because it had happened the year before, his name was Ali Hassan Salame, that, that this man who was Yasser Arafat, head of the PLO's chief of intelligence, had in some way I didn't understand been our man. I worked for two years, more than two years, to report that story and find out what that meant. And in February of 1983, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, told the story of how this man, Salame, had had been recruited and run as an American asset for almost 10 years during the 1970s, one of the most amazing intelligence operations the U.S. had run, all the while being a main target of Israeli intelligence, which rightly, from their standpoint, regarded him as a terrorist, as a member, uh, in some ways, leader of Black September, the group that attacked Israeli athletes at Munich uh, and was responsible for many other uh, uh, terrorist operations against Israel. So it was a a classic story about, about intelligence, the moral ambiguities of intelligence, about this remarkable um, operation the U.S. had run, the, the newspaper story opened with a scene in the White House as President Jimmy Carter is told that this agent who's been so valuable to the United States has been killed. Fast forward a few months to April 1983. I go to the U.S. Embassy in Beirut to interview one of the military attaches to talk about our program to train the Lebanese army. Uh, I leave about 12.30. I walk back up the hill to my hotel. Just after 1 o'clock, I hear the loudest explosion that I've ever heard in Beirut, and that's saying something. I run down the hill, and I see that our embassy, where I was a half hour before, has been blown apart with heavy loss of life. It turned out that the man who had run the operation that I described, who had recruited Arafat's chief of intelligence for the CIA, had been killed in that bombing, along with every member of the CIA station who was in Beirut that day. In the days after that bombing, the people who had been recruited by this remarkable American, his real name was Robert Ames, and he was truly an American hero, The Arabs who had been recruited by him in their grief because they had found him such a compelling, uh, admirable person needed to turn to somebody and share their grief. And I was the only person alive in Beirut who really knew the story. I was a journalist, but I'd written it on the front page, and I'd been talking to them, remember, for two years. They knew I knew all about this. So they began to really pour their hearts out, and they told me details about these operations that a journalist, frankly, has no business knowing. But I learned more and more, and I realized, finally, this was a story that I had to tell, but I couldn't 
tell it as a newspaper story. In a sense, I'd already written it once. But I, was, I now had a level of detail that could get people killed. These were all live operations. So I, I decided the only thing to do with it was to write a novel. I sat down and wrote a, wrote a first draft. It was rejected by every publisher I sent it to. It was so embarrassing, so humiliating. <laughs> uh, finally, one publisher, W.W. W. Norton, said, well, you know, we're not sure about this book, but if you'll write a second book of nonfiction f- for us, you're a journalist, that's what you know how to do, uh, we'll, we'll publish this. So that gave me the confidence to go back and rewrite it a couple times. It was published in 1987 as Agents of Innocence. It's still in print. Uh, I'm told that it is given to young CIA officers in training when they ask, what's this business really like? They're given this book. Often people who come in to talk to CIA recruiters who ask that question, what, you know, what's, what's this all about anyway? So well, why don't you read Agents of Innocence? That's as good an explanation as there is. The strength of the book obviously, is that it's based on true life. I mean, I I tried to follow this story as faithfully as as I could. But that opened up a new career for me. Uh, I describe it in detail because I I wasn't a novelist at all. I was a journalist. I just just wandered into the biggest story of my life, and uh, parts of it, the only way I could tell was was in this this way through fiction. That I've now written uh, nine novels. I just finished my latest, which is called The Director, which is about somebody a little bit like Edward Snowden, uh, who uh, is in the CIA and is uh, befriended by a, a new director who's looking for brilliant young technological talent and gets himself into more trouble than he could <laughs> imagine. Uh, that'll be published uh, Father's Day. Um, so it's been a wonderful uh, second career for me. It allowed me, to be honest, to pay my children's tuition bills. <laughs> I've I've loved that so much that I just I, I became a, something I couldn't live without. So I kept coming back and writing this, these books. They made me some some money. One of them was made into a movie that I like. Body of Lies called Body of Lies has Leonardo DiCaprio in it and Russell Crowe. I was able to introduce my three daughters, who were then teenagers or close to it, to Leo. And we had Leo over to the house, and each of them has a picture of Leonardo DiCaprio with his arm around them, which they love to so show their friends. Good. And uh, so that, that was a... That was a, a fun uh, bonus. You know, every writer kind of dreams of you know, some maybe dreads their uh, book being made into a movie. This was a good experience because it was made by an extraordinarily good director, Ridley Scott. Right. I have to, to, to read from the, the Amazon site. Uh, the blurb says, a riveting imagine. this is about Cyril, uh, a riveting imagined world, surreal in fact that one always wonders if it's imagined at all. And that's uh, praise from no less than Scott Turo, uh, a novelist who has done pretty well by himself as well. And then the description says, made restless by the tightening restrictions of CIA bureaucracy, Agent and Alan Taylor oversteps moral and legal bounds in a top-secret mission to destabilize the Soviet Union. His new recruit, the beautiful Anna Barnes, who struggles with complex feelings for Taylor, receives a deeper education than she signed up for. Yeah, I want to read that. (laughs) So the question is, where do you get that material? How do you? uh, Is it really like that in the world of espionage to have these 
these uh, femme fatales and that sort of thing. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> um, the uh, you know we need a little literary license, but it is true that all of my books uh, have been researched carefully. I described to your listeners how I wrote my first book uh, based on the reporting that I'd done and this extraordinary access I had to a story. When I then sat down to write a second novel, I was fascinated by the, the way in which the Soviet Union, as I was writing the book, was coming apart. And I was particularly interested in, in why the ethnic republics, uh, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Armenia, uh, the Baltic republics, why, why did that thread was so weak and you know, what we'd done to pull at that thread and pull those republics apart. So I began doing a lot of reporting and found a series of characters who'd been involved in uh, op covert operations across the border to weaken and destabilize the Soviet Union. And so that formed the real-life background for the story that I told. Um, Yes, you, you invent characters who, uh, you know, the, the, the beautiful Anna Barnes who's going to be involved <laughs> with uh, the handsome Alan Taylor. But, but in that book, I got very interested in, in women operations officers in the CIA. At that time, uh, this, I was writing this in 1989, it was still fairly unusual to have women operations officers. There were reports officers, as they were called, who were – kind of administrative people who would, uh, you know, the big brave case officer male would go out and, and, and talk to the agent. Then he'd come back and be debriefed by the reports officer who often would write the, the cable and the reports officer was, 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 a, was a woman. That was changing. And so there was a body of experience that was developing of women as operations officers in the field. And it was fascinating, uh, not least because of the sexual tensions. I mean, a young woman who approaches a man at a cocktail party uh, in uh, Tashkent or imagine the place, uh, that man is going to think one of two things if it's 1989. He's either going to think, this woman is coming on to me. She just walked over to me at the cocktail party and initiated a conversation. Oh, wow. Or he's going to think, that's a CIA officer. Or maybe you'll think that's a political officer, but either way, you know, somebody, somebody's pumping me for information. So that was part of the difficulty that, w that women had, that, that, that um, in a world where powerful people you wanted to steal secrets from were often men, how would they make those approaches? How would they do the development of the prospective agent? How would they get to the moment where they, where they pop the question? Are, are you are, are you prepared to, to sign up and take take money from me as your case officer and report to me and deliver secret information to me risking your life so that that was fascinating and and um, women characters women operations officers have appeared in a lot of my novels and again I've tried to draw this from the real experience of people that I have have talked to in my journalistic life. Uh, people who are interested in intelligence are so used to um, really fanciful James Bond um, scenarios that, that are so unreal. I mean, you know, if you've seen all these Born Identity movies, 
the actual life of an intelligence officer, which is mostly spent waiting for meetings, sitting in an empty safe house waiting for your agent to show up, planning uh, the details of, of a clandestine uh, run through a series of countries. You know, it's so unlike Jason Bourne jumping across rooftops and firing an uh, automatic weapon. I mean, so um, I actually got interested in the in the real uh, stuff of, of intelligence. Uh, as opposed to the to the to the fantasy part, I think that's why CIA officers, if if you believe what they say, uh, read my books and like this because it's it's like what they actually do in re- in real life. Um, it, it's it's not if you if you if what you like is Robert Ludlum shoot him up. Um, you know, probably another author would be better for you. But if you're interested in what. American intelligence officers actually do overseas. That's what I'm trying to write about. You know, like most parts of our government, the CIA has changed uh, enormously. Um, again, if your listeners will just think about the complications, uh, it's, it's true today in, as in, in 2013 as it was in 1989 that in that situation in the cocktail party, there's something that the woman operations officer has to be careful about that, you know, is – part of the challenge for her in being effective. I would think that's a particular challenge for someone like you or for someone like the late Tom Clancy who tries to present things as accurately as possible. In his case, the accuracy was technological largely. In your case, it's procedural and uh, um, in terms of policy. But how do you uh, finesse being accurate with being Interesting. If it's it's waiting and waiting and waiting for your case officer to show up, how do you exercise that muscle? And I think it also uh, is relevant to your role as a journalist, where you're encouraged not to flex those kind of muscles. Just just the facts, no embellishment, no nothing. Now you've got a whole new palette that you can draw from. Well, the there's nothing that um, about being faithful to the to the facts, the way things are, that requires you to be boring in how you, how you render them. Uh, a journalist writing any story, you know, your first uh, responsibility beyond getting it right is, is, to, is to get people to read it. So you put a lead on it that's as gripping as you can. You find an anecdote that is just, you know, that people say, I got to read that. They just, you know, they can't stop reading it. The same is true, obviously, with with fiction. You're you want to tell a story that's faithful to what really happens. But I, I like to read uh, thrillers, and we all bring uh, expectations to thrillers. We all love that way in which, in the last uh, thirty or forty pages, the you know plot does a couple of somersaults, and there's some new things we didn't see coming, and uh, the thing we thought was the 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 key to the to the mystery turns out not to be, and. Uh, so I, I've learned uh, over time, this is now my ninth book, that you have to deliver on the expectations that readers bring to your books. And that's especially true if you're writing something that's a spy thriller. People buy it expecting that they'll, they'll be thrilled. They don't want they want to, they want to you know, get, get, get a good ride out of it. I, I wrote one novel that was very explicitly not a spy thriller. Um, called the Sun King. It was it was a novel uh, set in Washington. Um, tried to to paint on the same kind of canvas that Fitzgerald did in The Great Gatsby. Right. And uh, I got actually wonderful email from somebody who said, "Dear Mr. Ignatius, 
uh, I read your book, Body of Lies, and your book, The Increment. And on the strength of that, I bought your book, The Sun King. I want my money back. <laughs> and I thought, what can I say? The it's it, you know it it you can warn people that this is a different kind of thing. That if you're if you're if you if you like chocolate ice cream, you know this is lemon sherbet. So you know it's not going to taste the same. But but they people still still say why doesn't this why isn't this one just like the other ones? <laughs> I have to note that you've had I think the uncanny experience. Uh, with blood money, and it sounds like with this most recent one, uh, you'll have the very odd experience of what you write about comes true. I mean, it seemed to me, if I recall correctly, about the time blood money came out, um, there was this sort of uh, exchange of uh, money, of payment to a family for people who'd been who'd been killed. Uh, and now you've got this, this other novel uh, coming out now that, that replicates the Snowden situation somewhat. That's got to be a very odd experience where what you write becomes well, true. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's gratifying in the sense that you, you try to write uh, – I'm a journalist, so I, I want to be on the news. I want to be writing about the things that are really happening. And you try to anticipate what – at the time that this book comes out, what are people going to be thinking about? I went to Iran in 2006 as a journalist and had a fascinating couple of weeks in Iran, and I, I knew that I wanted to write a novel about that country and intelligence operations there. And I got thinking about the Iranian nuclear program and how if you penetrated the supply chain of the equipment going into the Iranian nuclear program, you could do great mischief. Uh, to good advantage from our standpoint. I say this because people, when the book came out and then the revelations about the Stuxnet computer virus that afflicted the Iranian uh, centrifuges uh, came out, people said, David, how did you invent Stuxnet? Uh, <laughs> and really, I, honestly, I promise there's no – but I just was applying um, reasonable analysis to what the problem was. That was obvious. What you might do about it, that was also pretty obvious. Uh, how might you crack some of the technical problems? That wasn't obvious, but if you thought about it some, you'd end up in, in that place. With the director, uh, my, my latest novel, I, I got fascinated by the world of hacking and the way in which Fort Meade, the NSA's headquarters, the CIA itself – uh, increasingly, um, the, the traditional themes of the spy novel, uh, penetration of the agency, uh, manipulation of the adversary, collection of information, those are all being written in zeros and ones. In other words, today it would be more advantageous to recruit the systems administrator who runs the CIA's computer network really than to recruit the CIA director himself. And we, meaning the United States, realized that a long time ago. So our operations have been pitched into this digital space for a long time. And uh, so I got fascinated by that. I thought, you know, we in this writing spy novels really haven't tumbled to the reality very well. And I went to hacker conventions and all kinds of screwy things to do my research. I was writing the book, and along comes Edward Snowden. And the incredible revelations and uh, consequences of that, this was just as I was finishing my first draft. 
And I thought, wow, you know, real life is turning out to be a lot more interesting than this novel. So I began <laughs> madly reworking it and uh, got a second draft done and, and then fortunately had time to, to do a third draft. So I'm happy with the way the novel came out. But the Snowden case is, is one where if you'd sat down to write a novel with those details, um, it wouldn't have been – Believable when you know back before it happened. Sometimes something has to, has to actually happen in the real world for it to be credible as fiction. <laughs> I can't believe that that almost an hour has flown by and we haven't begun to to touch several things I wanted to talk about. Before we do run out of time, I want to ask you to to kind of bring us back to where we started in our conversation, discussion of foreign policy, uh, discussion of of, of uh, technology. As someone like me who who remembers Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and, and foreign policy back in the day, the, the Camp David Accords, all that sort of thing, the Middle East has been an enigma for decades in terms of U.S. policy. How does it look to you now? Is it better? Is it worse? Is it possible to cast it in those terms? Well, it was a mess when I started covering it in 1980. Uh, I began as a correspondent covering the Iraq-Iran war, a, a ghastly war that killed a million Iranians, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis. Uh, the Palestinian-Israeli problem was a nightmare then. It's a nightmare now. Um, this is a part of the world that has just been tormented by bad governance, by uh, underdevelopment uh, politically, economically. Uh, a part of the world that's just had trouble making its transition into the modern world. And what I felt when I first began covering the Middle East in 1980 was that I was looking at a political culture that was broken. It took me a while to frame it in those terms, but it became more and more obvious that these were police states that they were generally governed, whether they were monarchies or, or nominally republics, they were, they were governed by their secret police. And people lived intimidated, just frightened of telling the truth. Uh, political uh, work was an act of bribery or physical intimidation, uh, threats of assassination, assassination. I watched so many people be assassinated in the time that I was a Middle East correspondent. And that culture is in the process of changing. The period that we call the Arab Spring, which has ended up in many ways, not surprisingly, being kind of a nightmare, um, is, is part of that process of transition, part of the process of that part of the world becoming modern. I always like to remind myself that after the French Revolution in 1789, it took hmm, 30 years, 40 years, maybe more, for Europe really to stabilize, for a new order to, to really put down roots, uh, and, and for a stable system of governance to spread across Europe so that you had more, more democracy and stability uh, by the middle of the 19th century. And it's going to take that long in the Arab world. I mean, this is a process of decades. I just have come back from Egypt. Uh, and as I often do when I, when I travel, I, I got out of Cairo, whereas in big places it's often hard to understand the trends. And I went to a village in the Nile Delta 
north of Cairo, the, the Nile spreads out into a thousand little tri tributaries. And I went to a place called Menufia in the, in the middle of that um, delta. And I arranged to talk to people in the, in the community to ask them, what's happened to you in this place over the last year? since the overthrow of Mubarak, since the arrival of the Muslim Brotherhood President Mohamed Morsi, since his overthrow uh, last summer. How's life changed? And I came away with an understanding of what was going on. It was different from what I'd been reading in the papers, to be honest. It was, it was, what, what I saw was a country where the, the, the idea that I remember from Tahrir Square, where I was in 2011, the idea that I'm a citizen I have rights. I'm not going to be intimidated by the secret police anymore. I want a different kind of country. That that idea is still alive, and people were expressing it to me happily. They decided they didn't want to live in the kind of state that the Muslim Brotherhood was trying to create. It's a secretive, repressive organization. It, it basically wanted to create a fairly rigid Muslim state, and, and it's, I think it's wonderful that Egyptians decided clearly by a large majority that they didn't want to live that way. It's tragic that so many hundreds of people got killed when the military intervened. But, but the decision of people, and I, they explained it to me in this little place in the Nile Delta. We went to the headquarters of the Muslim Brotherhood. You know, it's, it's now a daycare center. We went to the headquarters of their political party. It's now an interior design shop. So, you know, <laughs> life moves on. But um, – that, that, that's the thing I guess I'd, I'd want your listeners most to understand that I know from uh, 35 years of traveling in that part of the world is that this is a long story. It's going to be bumpy. A lot of it will have anti-American aspects for a long time. It's, I hate it. I hate be, people being so angry at America. But, but it's part of a process of becoming modern, and we're just going to have to let it run and, and to some extent – stay out of the way so we don't get slammed in the meantime. David Ignatius, thank you very much for joining us today for Profiles. It's been a, a great treat. Thank you. You've been listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Will Murphy. Thanks for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in November of 2013. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.